Welcome to the Nonprofit News Feed. All the news from the best sector. We give you the highlights of what we're seeing in nonprofits across the U.S. in the news. This is a proud production of WholeWhale.com, a B Corp digital agency. All right, let's get to the summary. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we're talking about New York City floods. We're talking about medical debt, uh, and we're uh, we're going to talk about sharpshooters and helicopters for a nonprofit. Well, we'll get there. How's it going, Nick? It's going great, George. I'm enjoying a bright, sunny day in Manhattan, which contrasts quite starkly with last week in which New York City experienced essentially historic flooding that completely overwhelmed the system. And we want to start with this as our top story because it has lots of different threads regarding issues that our audience cares about. So our top story is that floods last week left New Yorkers stranded, bewildered, as typically dry streets became overrun with water, as documented in videos and pictures that you can find at our newsfeed and in the show notes. Neighborhoods like Williamsburg, Park Slope, even downtown Manhattan were overrun with water. The floods particularly impacted Lower Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens, and renewed calls from New Yorkers to double down on climate resiliency in America's most populous and most densely populous city. At one point on Friday, George, virtually all New York subway lines were either fully or partially suspended which any New Yorker would know grinds the city to a halt. We also had one story out of Bushwick where migrants who had exhausted their legal right to shelter, I believe it's 90 days, were unceremoniously dumped into the rain during these floods before the city eventually reversed course. So as New Yorkers across the city figured out how to get home, and we can talk about the lack of uh, government coordination there, um, Many wondered aloud how the city could adapt to these weather phenomenon that, you know, these once in a century floods that seem to be happening every year or so now. And particularly, how can we adapt an infrastructure that's quite frankly outdated and old and build it up in time to address the immediate effects of climate change? One such project has already begun down in downtown Lower Manhattan after Hurricane Sandy completely decimated Lower Manhattan. Um, And in the financial district flooding the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, George, some of those businesses down there didn't get power back for half a year later just because of the water damage in those big skyscrapers. So there is a Lower Manhattan Battery Resiliency Project, which is kind of really cool as far as the Army Corps of Engineers. Essentially, they're building up um, essentially like natural kind of flood barriers for Lower Manhattan, which a historian of Manhattan will tell you didn't exist in the first place uh, even 150 years ago. Most of Lower Manhattan is actually landfill. It was intentionally filled in. That is land that they invented. So you can read more about those efforts to protect neighborhoods like South Street Seaport, the Battery, and even the World Financial and World Trade Center, which are at really severe threat of flooding. But George, this brings into question, our largest city is not adequately prepared to deal with the immediate effects of climate change, which are very obviously happening in the now. And it exacerbates all the social issues that the nonprofits we talk about care about. It exacerbates children's nonprofits. Schools were (laughs) a complete mess last Friday. Migrants coming to the city. 
the migrants themselves are in literal danger because the city is <laughs> throwing them out of housing. George, if we can't address climate, we can't address any of the other social issues that we need to tackle and that nonprofits are often tasked with tackling. So, George, where do we go from there? Yeah, I mean, this is the intersection of social justice and the environmental movement in plain sight. I think one of the things that was so pronounced to me was I, I was there in, in New York for Sandy. And literally, like I remember that I was I happened to be on high ground in Brooklyn and my house became a place where other people who weren't on high ground, meaning floodplains, were coming to hang out in my tiny apartment in <laughs> in Brooklyn. And one of the things that I think we're going to have to start looking at a bit more is the idea of where flood zones are, where, frankly, there are more likely to be income disparities. And you're going to realize very quickly that the high ground is better priced. <laughs> and you're finding communities that, frankly, may, may struggle disproportionately live below that floodplain. And you don't have to look very far into history, including not limited to New Orleans. And what happens when, frankly, climate change begins to meet reality? And what, what, what struck me here is that this wasn't a hurricane. This was a storm, right? Cat category storm. And it shut the city down. I, I think it's worthy to take note that if it can happen in New York, it can happen anywhere. And I think there's a lot of second order effects, as you as you mentioned, particularly with communities in crisis or that live below the floodplain, frankly. Yeah, George, climate change is also a social justice issue and the effects of it are intersectional. And I think that nonprofits, especially going forward, are going to be increasingly aware about it, especially as we think about all right, you have a kid in school. You're a parent who can't get off work. Their kid is now in an unsafe school. This happened. Many schools in New York City literally flooded and it was pandemonium. How do you go get your kid if you're at a job you can't leave, right? And that brings us into the cost of childcare is absorbently high and it's all interrelated. So I think that nonprofits, as we continue to move forward, need to think intersectionally and holistically about how social justice issues, um, social service services that nonprofits may be touching are exacerbated and impacted by um, climate emergencies, disaster management, all of the above. Yeah, I think there is a, a pronounced takeaway here for me is also that as you said, disaster preparedness, emergency prep is no longer something that lives in a pamphlet. It lives in your day to day. And it gives you a reason when you're communicating in and around this topic of saying we provide these resources to the community. And why now? Because it is worse than ever because of the potential for storms like these. This is why our work matters for your fundraising, but also for your community outreach. And I don't mean to say use this as a scare tactic, but it's an urgency tactic in your communications, in your outreach, and making the case for, frankly, we're, we're not stopping climate change tomorrow. There are going to be more storms with the capability of doing this to the largest cities in our country. So I think there is an opportunity for nonprofits to to look at this with this new type of urgent communication. Absolutely, George. Hit the nail 
on the head. Um, by the way, if you're interested in tech data and the intersection between tech and data and emergency disaster response, the United Nations actually has some really cool under the radar product uh, projects on data and disaster risk reduction. There are teams of open source investigators and projects, collaborations, with Google, data researchers, et cetera, that have essentially mapped out every single building in Morocco that was impacted by the earthquake. And then they did the same in Libya. They have open source maps that have documented every single building in Libya to even potentially guide rescue crews into areas that need attention using all sorts of satellite imagery. There's a whole world of data risk reduction and resilience um, happening both at the international as well as the regional level. So if you're interested in that, um, there's some phenomenal governmental, non-governmental and open source partnerships using data and tech to improve climate resilience and disaster response uh, around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, um, of course, videos and assets if you are looking for more uh, information on this in the nonprofitnewsfeed.com weekly newsletter summary sent by Nick. Nick, you notice I started putting your name in there. I'm going to like, I think people want to know that you're the human writing this. So there's that. Absolutely. Yeah. And those videos are pretty crazy. You know, George, I think every New Yorker at one point in time wishes that the FDR just fell into the ocean. Um, but this was a little, this was a little too much. Not while you know? you're on it. How about that? Not, Not while, while you're, you're on it. it. Exactly. <laughs> All right, this, I'm going to take us into again. our. <laughs> I'm going to take us into our next story, and this one comes from Time, and this one's a little bit complicated, but I think it actually really underscores an issue that we talk a lot about on this podcast, and it goes into the history and the background of it. So, in June, a New York Times investigation revealed that a wealthy non hop a nonprofit hospital system in the Midwest had been withholding care from debt-strapped patients. And this article kind of documents the history of how we got here with our very, very enormous, ginormous, overwhelming nonprofit hospital systems, how this came to dominate the American healthcare system and how these quote unquote, again, nonprofit hospitals, which by definition receive tax breaks, um, and in many cases, even subsidies to be built for communities are straddling patients with debt. The argument, of course, being that they are straddling patients with debt, not in the public interest against the ethos of what it means to be a nonprofit. So this is a long article, George. Um, I think if you're interested in nonprofit healthcare systems and medical debt and the history of how we got here, right, it wasn't just like this popped up, right? This is by design. Um, there's, you know, there's policy choices that were made 100 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago that helped us get to this point. And I think that understanding is some of that, that background can help us better understand the problem as it exists today. But George, what do you want our nonprofit listeners to take away from this article? I think it's the consequences of ambiguity, which means there's one very interesting. I'd never heard of this before. Hill Burton Act. And there was, you know, strong bipartisan support, but there was some disagreement between some Republicans and Democrats about this process. With this Hill Burton Act in 1946, it basically said, yeah, nonprofit hospitals, 501c3s, you get tax exempt. And frankly, it 
led to what was good, uh, a hospital building boom that included 40% of our country's um, counties, sorry, <laughs> counties that lacked hospital care in 1945 to get built. But as a result, hospital prices kept increasing. And one of the reasons is that they had the stipulation in this Hill-Burton Act saying that in order to receive this construction funding and basically this classification, they had to provide a, in quotes, reasonable volume <laughs> of free care to residents who could not afford to pay. There is all manner of sin hidden in those words, reasonable volume. And it has been used and misused. And you saw the New York Times talking about that and groups like even McKenzie, the consulting firm, being hired to help these hospitals basically come up with ways of squeezing the people who could not afford to pay, even though there very much is in terms of the classification for 501c3's legal standing for them to receive free care because you, if you are listening in America as a taxpayer, are subsidizing this. And, you know, we keep bringing it up because healthcare is at the root of so many issues of our country. It is the number one reason, the number one reason someone will go bankrupt is because of an unexpected medical bill. And frankly, I, I think there's a, a, a lot to unpack and pay attention to if you're looking at policies and how, how things are worded, uh, because I, I was just blown away by like those two words. And the second order effects of, of what it has caused healthcare in our country and access for low income people. Yeah, George, I think healthcare disparities are one of potentially the most salient social justice issue of American social and cultural and political and economic life. And quite frankly, goes untalked about because the system is just so such a behemoth. <laughs> it almost feels daunting to try to be like, where can you begin on these intricacies? But I there. think you understand. Start there. Reasonable volume. Define that. Yeah. What is reasonable volume? Come on. Obviously, there's a lot of laws. Uh, the Affordable Care Act came out in 2010, did quite a bit for increasing access, but we're, we're still not there as that times. And other articles have, have revealed about the, the failure of nonprofit hospitals to support those in need. Absolutely. All right, George, I'm going to take this into our next story. This one is neither happier. It's not happier, but it's definitely weirder. Uh, I just wanted so, to hear you have to explain it. I'm just really excited about this. George, this comes from the esteemed journalists at Yahoo News. And the title is that a nonprofit wants sharpshooters and helicopters to kill over 2,000 invasive deer living on California's Catalina Island. So the nonprofit that manages much of Catalina Island, it's a conservancy group, as many, you know, big parks are managed, are seeking to cull some of the 2,000 mule deer. So these are deer that are invasive to the island, but they have been there since approximately 1920. Catalina Island is just a short boat ride off the coast of Southern California, welcomes about a million tourists a year, quote, seeking a peaceful respite from the hustle and smog of Los Angeles. But the nonprofit that administers the island, home to about 4,000 
people says its existence is threatened by these deer. So, and that issue is exacerbated by the fact that climate change has made vegetation, you know, what the deer need more scarce to survive and has pitted, created some complicated dynamics between advocates who feel differently. So George, I have two questions for you. One, have you ever been to Catalina Island? Two, where do you fall on the deer issue? Uh, all I know of Catalina is the uh, joked about in some movies, Catalina wine mixer, which you know is a joke. I think it's Step Brothers. This is an interesting issue because you've got on, on one side of the fence a you know a conservation group, and then the other is the Humane Society that operates in the region, saying like, "Look, the mule deal have been on this island for a hundred years, and it's you know part of our island's appeal." Uh, and that you know is a quote from Diane Stone of the Catalina Island Humane Society. And so there's a, you know, a, a bit of a battle there. While they're not like opposed to killing deer, they, they say hunters can already sign up for you know, expeditions to do this as opposed to just sort of killing them all. I don't know. It was an extreme headline, and I found it interesting. The uh, petition, though, to, uh, to oppose the mass calling now has over 3,200 signatures, and note the island only has 4,000 residents, <laughs> people year-round. George, something tells me that Californians have a lot of strong opinions on this kind of thing. I I find it interesting when you've got somewhat seeming like progressive nonprofits on both sides of something like an environmental issue. And it's, it's complicated. The truth is overpopulation of a certain species that is invasive can do tremendous damage. You know, I, I go up to Northern California and see what happens with like the Asian beetle wrecking literally tree after tree after tree, uh, which has pretty, pretty tough side, uh, side effects on, on forest fires and things like that. And so, um, you know, it, it's certainly a problem all over California, not just limited to uh, Catalina. Absolutely. All right. I think it's just about time for that feel-good story. And this one comes from the Jed Foundation. The Jed Foundation is a uh, client of ours here at Holwell. Um, we love the work they do. Just a tremendous teen and youth mental health advocacy organization um, providing resources for uh, teens and young adults um, experiencing all sorts of mental health uh, issues as well as advoca advocating for suicide prevention. They have teamed up with the, quote, glow getters, uh, students from the Stevens Institute Technology from the great state of New Jersey, um, who launched a program called Neon Nights, uh, which raises awareness around uh, mental health um, and raised approximately uh, $13,000 for mental health programming and featured close to 100 students at the inaugural parade um, and a glow-themed dance party on campus. Um, and the student volunteers just did an incredible job of um, putting this together. Um, and they worked with uh, the Stevens Institute Greek Honor Society, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, um, and other student volunteers. So it's really exciting to see student activists caring about issues like this, as well as getting some institutional support from organizations like the Jet Foundation um, to make this possible, to make this possible. Yeah, great engagement of uh, the rising generation and, you know, shows that many people care. Hopefully they're going to have a great time over Halloween as well. All right, Nick, we were talking about conservation, so I feel like I have a joke in line with this. What does the Great Bear Foundation call bears that lose their teeth? What does the 
great fair town foundation called bears that lose their teeth george i don't know uh gummy bears ah <laughs> yep i, I, see, I feel like I you, see. you you had that mm. one you had that mm. one uh, it was right there so you know right the great bear foundation is a real nonprofit organization dedicated to the conservation of bears and their habitat around the world the foundation created in 1981 is a voice for bears and they have offices uh in multiple states everywhere wild bears exist uh they have been forced to adapt their habitat and changes caused by human population growth and so this group is looking out for them so huzzah to that as a final reminder um we do have a lot of extra products that we'd love to talk about one in particular is causewriter.ai causewriter.ai has uh courses now that are open to anybody to learn more about what things like GPT, LLMs, generative AI, what, what's going on here? Kind of starting points for understanding more about how you can use this amazing technical lever to do more work at your organization. All right, Nick. Thanks. As always. Thanks so much, George. Talk to you later. Thanks for joining us for this week of Nonprofit News. You can find all of the links from the news articles we discussed at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. And all you have to do is sign up for our free weekly email summary. I hope it was helpful and gave you some new ways to think about the sector.